we are we are still in our series going through the the churches uh, that Jesus had John address in his letter or his book of Revelation, and and as we get into this letter today, it's going to be written to the church at Sardis, and and just so you know, in a nutshell, this is a call to action. It's a call to repentance but not just any action. It's not like we can just get together and all of a sudden decide to do something and it not be, um, let me say it like this. Jesus expects intentional, spirit-filled, Jesus-centered lives lived out by his people. He expects purposeful, intentional action. Jesus expects to be the motive of our lives, the purpose of our living, and the end in which we hope for. As we come into Christianity, as we are converted into Christianity, our lives are changed. No longer are they to be motivated by all of the things that we've pursued in the life before. It's, not, it's no longer to be motivated by a pursuit of money and a pursuit of, of, uh, of financial security in the world. It's no longer to be motivated by building a kingdom here in this world, but by giving our efforts and our intentions to building His kingdom. And as we look forward to the end of our life, it's no longer to be, man, I, I hope that I've done enough. I hope that I have, I've, I've earned his approval or I can live in his acceptance and that he will, I've done enough that he'll love me because in the end I want to be good enough that he'll accept me into the afterlife or to eternal life. But in Christ, our life becomes all about Christ. He's to be the motive for what we, for, for, the reasons we have. He's, he's to be the motive of our actions. He's to be the purpose that we live for. It's his mission. It's his purposes. It's his commands that we obey. And he's to be the end of all we do. You see, Jesus deserves. He deserves to be what he expects to be. His fame is to be the intended outcome of all we do. That's the call of the Christian life, to live for Jesus's fame. And we've seen it over and over in these churches. We've seen it happen again and again. But the unfortunate reality is that it's not all, what, what should be is not always what is. What should be happening is not always what happens. What, what should be happening in the church is not always the natural progression of his people. Or I think we're going to see that more clearly demonstrated in this letter to Sardis than we have to this point. Now, we're going to be reading in Revelation chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and welcome to turn there. We're going to read the first six verses of that chapter. If you don't, the verses will be on the screen. And, and I, I say this off and on, but we use uh, a live, there's a live event on the Version app. If you've got a smart device and you have Version and you have the Bible on, on your app through Version, you can go there, you can find a live event and follow along. All the notes that will be on the PowerPoint are there and you're able to uh, take notes alongside of that. So I would encourage you to do that. It's, it's an extremely useful tool. But to the scripture, Revelation chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1, we'll read through verse 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your works, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, 
you still you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Before we get into this, I... I just want you to know I struggled in a big way with this with this message. I really I really dealt with it, and I mean it's even this morning. There's a sense I, I'm not I don't really I'm not excited about preaching this. And, and the reason and the reality is is that as I preach this, I recognize and have been struggling with how much of it directly applies to our church, and it scares me to think about. I dread the thought that Jesus might write a, a letter to the church, to our church, the way. And it crushes me to think about it. <clears throat> As I sat with my wife last night and just talked about it, tried to work it out and tried to understand there's so much more than I can preach in the, in the time that we have here today. There's so much more to deal with. There's so many, so many different nuances and, and ways that things could be perceived. I, and I intended to say this later, but I'm, I'm just going to say it now as I'm talking about it. I think there's no more important letter for us to listen to. Whether you're a member of the way or whether you're new to Springfield or whether you're in a church, you're part of a church somewhere else and you're just visiting with us, I don't think that the way should be defined as Sardis. But I think the way and the other churches that are committed to, to preaching and proclaiming the gospel in Springfield exist in Sardis. I think this is our hometown. And I think you'll see that broken out as we go through this. You see, Jesus, he comes in this letter, and it starts out like the other letters. He comes and he says, and gives an introduction. And these introductions, each of these introductions is unique. Each of them has some relevant feature or factor for what he's about to preach. See, he laid them all out as, as um, his identification and, his, and, and laid them out as his uh, source of identity or his, uh, maybe his resume would even be a better way to say it, in Revelation 1. As he came to John, as he appeared to John and said, write these things down, he says, this is who I am that's telling you to write these things down. Then he took those traits and he brought them into this next section of his revelation and he brings them specifically to churches in which they're relevant to as he writes or has John write. And so in this letter, he comes and he says, I am the source of life and the highest authority in the church. And you're like, well, how did you get that out of him being the, the source or, or he has the seven spirits of God and holds the stars? What does that mean? Well, first, we look at the, the seven spirits of God. We know that God doesn't have seven spirits. We recognize God as a triune God. That's the teaching of Scripture. So unless Jesus is going heresy on us or, or moving into some other doctrine, <clears throat> we have to understand that the reality is he's not saying there's seven spirits. So what could it mean? There's references in Isaiah. There's references throughout the New Testament that demonstrate to us that this seven fold, the, the, the seven spirits is really talking about the sevenfold function of the Holy Spirit, not just 
not just that the Holy Spirit has seven jobs. There's really more jobs for the Holy Spirit to do. But the number seven in Scripture demonstrates a completion, a perfection. Everything comes under, everything's done, everything's as it's intended to be. Everything is complete and perfect. That's what the number seven demonstrates. And so as we look at these seven spirits of God, we recognize that this is the fullness of the Holy Spirit in his perfection, in his completeness, in all of his roles and all of his functions and all of his responsibilities. This is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus sets himself as the authority over the Holy Spirit. And you're thinking, you might think, well, wait a minute, how can that be? Because we see in the Godhead, in the triune God, this, this eternally distinct person of the Holy Spirit submitting himself in Scripture to the Son, just as we see the Son submitting himself to the Father. And there's this direct line of authority. And so the Spirit came to do the work that Jesus started. In fact, Jesus teaches us, you can look at this in John, Jesus teaches us in John's Gospel, Jesus teaches us that the the Spirit was to come and be a comforter and a counselor, that he was to lead us into all truth, but that he wouldn't teach his own message. He would only teach what Jesus already taught, and he wouldn't exalt himself, but that he would point the glory and, and honor to Jesus. But his primary lesson, and we learn this in John chapter 3, is that he brings life to God's people. John chapter 3, you know, the passage that everybody thinks John 3, and I think the automatic thing that comes to mind is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Everybody knows that, right? We've learned it since we were little kids if you've been in church all your life. What we don't recognize oftentimes is that comes as the result of much, much more teaching above it, before it. Where Jesus teaches that man, flesh gives birth to flesh, that, that, that we are born and given life not by our own will, but by the power of the Spirit. You are alive in Christ, not because you had power or knowledge or understanding or strength of your own, but because the Spirit came in and took what was dead and made it alive. Jesus is the source of that life as he now sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. This is the, 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 the source of life. And then he talks about the seven stars, and symbolically in Revelation, we recognize that those seven stars are the ministers or the leaders of these churches. And Jesus holds them in his hand. He has them. First, their authority, the authority of any leader in the church, of every leader in the church, whether whether we recognize it or whether we want to own it, all authority comes from Jesus. I, I can't stand here and proclaim anything that he hasn't okay that he hasn't already said, that he hasn't already made part of his message. I, can't, I, don't, I don't come with anything new any time ever. Come and listen more often, and you're going to hear me every week calling to the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. I might bring it from different perspectives. I might try to apply it in different ways, but the reality is it always comes back to the message of Jesus. It always comes back to his mission. If I step out from underneath that, I'm trying to stand on my own authority, and, and you'd be better off going someplace else. Because my messages and my motives and, not, and, and my agendas are oftentimes not going to line up with Jesus. No, no, no man deserves to be in a place where they stand in final authority. Jesus is always the senior pastor. He is always the authority above the authority that you see. 
And if you're in a church or you belong to a church that doesn't practice this type of, of, of authority and, and this type of, of submission, that's, that's not a healthy church. Jesus says, I am the authority. I'm the one that commands my ministers and my messengers to proclaim the message that I've given them. I'm the one that they are responsible to, that they will answer to. And so we see him as the source of life, the one with the sevenfold spirit or the Holy Spirit. He's the source. He's the one that sends it out. And he is the one that holds the ministers. He, he holds them, gives them authority, protects them, but calls them to submission. And so we see that happening. He says, this is who I am. So in our church, where we live, I know we don't recognize it right away. I think you'll hear it and see it more as it comes. But right now, the words that he's about to say are more relevant to us than you might realize. You see, in the next section, we might think that, oh, Jesus is about to lay out his commendation. That's what we've seen. That's what, what the pattern is that he's followed. He's gone from his identity and who it is that's sending the letter to these good statements, to these, to these words of commendation that build up and encourage the church. But he comes to Sardis. He says, I know your works. Oh, that's how he started those other ones. That's, that's how he started the letters to the other books that he was going to commend. I know your works. I know your actions. I know the circumstances in which you live. I know your reputation. You have a reputation of being alive. That's as close as it gets to anything good. He stops. And, and, and he wasn't there. I know he, was, he, he wasn't there present in, in, in his physical form. But as boldly and as bluntly as I think it could be said, he says, but you are dead. That should weigh on us. This is his people. After all, I mean, they are a church. They're a, an organization, a physical body of people that he's writing to. He has nothing good to say to them. He doesn't celebrate their works. He, he, he doesn't celebrate their reputation. He doesn't celebrate the fruits of, of their efforts. He doesn't celebrate with them about what's going on in their body or in their people or around them. He doesn't celebrate with them because there's no reason to celebrate. And maybe, the, 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 maybe just maybe, the thing that he doesn't celebrate, that he celebrated in all the other churches to this point, that he doesn't even mention, tells us more about this church than, than the first two points that he said out loud. He doesn't celebrate their perseverance in any way. Totally quiet about endurance and perseverance. Totally quiet. Now let's just break these down individually. Let's try to understand what, what, what they mean and, what, and how we can work with them so that we can bring application to, to us. Because again, I think this is likely the most important letter that we could hear. Jesus didn't celebrate the works in Sardis because they were incomplete. That's what he says. He says, I know your works. But they are incomplete. They're not complete before my God. See, Jesus points out that, that they have works. They, they've got effort. They've got action. 
He points out that he knows what they're actively doing and that they, 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 this would become a point of celebration in previous letters, but here in Sardis, it's a point of contention. It's an issue with him. It's the difference here. Here's the difference. It's the difference between religious effort and an act of worship. And that digs all the way down to the motives of the people. Why do they do what they do? Who are they living for? It reminds me of the Pharisees that we see, not ridiculed, but confronted and and condemned in, in the Scriptures. Matthew 23, read it sometime. Jesus wasn't always gentle. Sometimes he was bold. It wasn't that he was being rude or a jerk, that he just was being direct. He called them whitewashed tombs. He said that the things that they were doing were empty and lifeless. Sounds a lot like these people. You see, what they had developed was a church full of religious effort, but no real act of worship. So they got together and they put on Easter egg hunts because they wanted to grow their church instead of wanting to make much of Jesus. They got together and they assembled and they put together movie nights that they invited people into because they wanted to just be comfortable in society and be accepted in culture rather than for people to hear the message of the gospel. They got together and they did things in such a way that that, that made the world like them. They were active. But they didn't do it out of a love for Jesus. There was a lot of selfish motivation, a lot of selfish desire. Some of it may have been a desire for works to be accepted before God as they walked into eternity. Some of it may have been just not wanting to be rejected by the people that they lived in and among. Some of it may have been, you know, just just to look good in front of their culture. But whatever it was, it wasn't driven out of a love for Jesus first. You see, Jesus expects to be the center of our life. He deserves to be the purpose of our life. He deserves to be the hope in which we look forward to. He deserves to be the one that we trust in because of who He is and what He's done and the message He's proclaimed. He deserves those things. And we can do everything in our power to convince Him that we are worthy without Him and those works will fall flat and empty. So Jesus didn't celebrate the works in Sardis. That became a point of contention. Jesus condemns the reputation in Sardis because it opposed who he knew them to be. From the outside looking in, from the outside looking in, this was a healthy church. In fact, I think it would be dangerous of, of us to assume that this church looked anything different than many of the churches we have belonged to and maybe from the outside looking in, even this church. I think we would be in danger to think that these weren't good. Notice the quotes good people. I think these people showed up at church on Sunday. I think they went to community group. I think that they got together and did things together. Tried to live their life. I think they had a lot of religious effort. And I think that's why they built a great reputation. You see, they had a reputation for being alive. 
And you would think, man, you would think, oh, man, that's, that's worth something. We ought to live for our reputation. We ought to make our reputation big so when people approve of us, it's automatically approving of Jesus, right? And so that's missing the point. You see, this church, they had a lot of activity. And they had built a great reputation. I don't think they had just built a reputation in their city. I think as other churches looked around and saw what was going on, they looked at that and thought, oh, man, what, what if we were like Sardis? They are, they're doing amazing things. They're not, they're not receiving ridicule. They're, they're growing big and they're not being beat down. They got lots of money. In fact, this city is one of the oldest cities in the area. It was extremely affluent. In fact, it was in this place that coins were first minted based on my study. I, I'd have to go back and find the resource for that in case you think it's someplace different. We could discuss that later. It's probably not worth it. But the first time gold and silver was minted into coins was in Sardis. They had a lot of it. The, the, the culture, though, was no different than any other city that we've already studied. Polytheistic. They had, t- they had a temple to Artemis. It was a, the, the, the god, uh, well, the goddess, the, the mother god in a sense, that they looked at as being the source of life. They had a temple to Zeus. They, they worshipped in the Roman emperor cult. I mean, they, those people were about worshipping their emperor. So the culture was no different, but here's Sardis not receiving persecution, not, not dealing with all the struggles and the problems, and the church from the outside looking in is like, man, what are they doing? They must be doing something right. People love them. They want them to show up. Come to our events. Do your thing. Help us make it possible. Give us your people. Give us your support. Join us. And the church, man, they were all about it. Let's go get involved. Let's be a part. And they built a great reputation. And everybody looking into that church thought, that church is alive. And Jesus can't celebrate that because he knows that church is dead. You see, automatically we should recognize there is a difference between what Jesus sees and what we see. There's a different scorecard for success in the world than there is a scorecard for success in Christ. There's a different scorecard. There's a different way to measure it, a different way to look at it. It's something, something more meaningful is happening when Jesus says this is a successful church than what can be measured in the world. He says you have a reputation of life, but you're dead. And then that, 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 that thing that he doesn't, mention that thing that he doesn't celebrate in any way i think speaks extremely loudly it it, it shouts at us in fact that he couldn't celebrate their suffering or perseverance because they didn't have any and and man in our culture in our context i mean our ears are oh man a a church in which you don't have to have suffering a a lifestyle in which i'm not going to deal with with hardship and oppression and persecution i love it i want it But in every other letter that Jesus had something to praise, that Jesus had something to say good about, this was present. In Ephesus, he commended them for not tolerating evil. He commended them for opposing the Nicolaitans, for for hating their actions, for standing in, in solid opposition against what the Nicolaitans were doing and teaching. In Smyrna, 
He had only commendation for this church that suffered. Man, they suffered. From the outside looking into that church, you might think, oh man, they're not going to make it. They're not, they got nothing going on. They're just barely getting by. Jesus speaks very highly of them. Praises them alone. He brings no condemnation in Smyrna. In Pergamum, a church just kind of hit in the middle of the road. He commended them for this, this, that this church suffered in the face of death. They were seeing people killed for their faith, for believing in Jesus, and not just believing it intellectually, but living it out physically. And people were dying. And he commends them for this. In Thyatira, he commends them for patient endurance. That's what we talked about last week, man. It's not fun to endure. If you think it's a good time to endure, go out and endure a little bit, and you'll find out that the endurance part sucks. The result after endurance is great. But the endurance part is difficult. But here in Sardis, Jesus can't say, I know your works. I know how you won't tolerate evil. He can't say, I, I know that, that you are staying faithful even in the face of death. He, he can't say that, that I know your, per, your, your, your perseverance and I know your patient endurance. He can't say that. Because this church had become a church that was so inoffensive that they had lost their witness. Well, why? Why do I say it's such an important letter for us? Why? Why? Why would that be? Because we live in a culture in which Christians are no longer proclaiming the gospel that offends people before it provides the hope of grace. You need to recognize that part of the gospel message is the fact that we are fallen, sinful, depraved, hopeless wretches. If you're sitting here today and you're not a believer, that's who you are. If you have, don't have the Spirit, that's who you are. If you're sitting here today and you've been in church all your life and all your hopes are tied to one moment as a child when you said a prayer and you did the right thing and followed the right set of circumstances and now I'm a believer and can do whatever I want, that is wrong. You're still a wretch. If you've not been given the Spirit and He's not brought life and converted you and changed you, You're without hope. You see, our gospel is offensive before it's gracious. Why do you think Jesus comes so boldly against these people? We live in a culture in which a successful church is determined more by its rate of growth in breadth than in depth. There's a lot of people that will visit our church, and it's happened. I've had conversations. I've been told by people, your church isn't growing fast enough. It must not be healthy. Let me tell you, our church, for those of you that are visiting and don't know, there's a lot of good gospel growth going on in this church. People are confessing and repenting of sin. And they are striving to live God-centered, Jesus-honoring, intentional, purposeful, missional lives. There's a lot of good gospel growth going on. Are we breaking any records in numerical growth? No. But we can't give up. 
And we can't deny that just because we're not busting at the seams in a building, that there's not good gospel growth going on. And that's the measure of success before the measure in numbers. Should we deny numbers or should we ignore numbers? No, there's, there, there's something to be learned there. But they aren't of first importance. We live in a culture in which churches count more on the programs they offer than the power of God's Spirit to bring change. Oh, I attended, uh, pick one, uh, Freedom in Christ. It's a, it's a big one around this area. I attended Freedom in Christ and it fixed all my problems. No, Freedom in Christ doesn't fix anything. Jesus and His Spirit fix everything. You see, that's the reality. No program can do what only God can. But we think if we get the right programs, if we get the right methods, if we do the right things, then all of a sudden it will all fall into place. We live in a culture in which even those that have been faithful at one point are being lulled to sleep because they see good people all around them and no longer recognize the need for the gospel. You see, I, I would encourage you to sit down in, in Panera sometime, and, and if somebody catches you, you can tell them, hey, my pastor told me to do it, and eavesdrop. Eavesdrop and listen to the conversations. A lot of Christian notice the quotes. You know, that's, that means that I'm being sarcastic. Sorry. A lot of Christian conversation going on. A lot of I did this and I did that. A lot of works mentality being presented. But if we're not listening, we'll get lulled to sleep by the fact that everybody around us is a believer and they don't need to hear the gospel. Let me, let me encourage you with this and remind you of this. There is not a moment at which the gospel proclamation doesn't need to be made, even to those that are mature Christians. Paul, in writing Romans, recognizes that if it's not for the gospel, he is a wretch. This is not at the beginning of his ministry. This is, this is after he's matured. It's after he's grown up, after he's written other letters that became Scripture. And he says, I'm a wretched man. You see, the gospel always pushes us back to the cross. It's what matures us after it's what saves us. The gospel is the sanctifying power that brings us from that moment of conversion into a righteous lifestyle. We need to proclaim the gospel. Even to those you think don't need to hear it. Because it's very easy to become a Pharisee and depend on what you're doing. Holding it up to Jesus as if you've done something great and grandeur. And we live in a culture in which the church has become optional to living a good life. Man. We can go to church on Sunday. We can go, we got the rest of this, we got six days a week then that belong to us. Think that's not how church culture exists here? Spend some time with them. Monday through Friday, that may belong to my job, but Saturday's all mine and I'll give Sunday to Jesus. But not, don't preach too long, preacher. Don't sing too long, worship leader. I need an hour and a half, that's all I need. Got to keep it in that box. Because I need to beat the Methodists to dinner and I got stuff I need to do this afternoon. This is the culture we live in. We may not like it. We may not want to admit it. But Springfield is more like Sardis than I think we'd like to admit, than we'd like to, to believe. 
There are over 400 churches in this area. This morning, right now, we're not the only ones gathering. There's others all over the city that got up, put on their Sunday go-to-meeting clothes, and went into a building that they call church, went to an event that they call church, sang some songs and listened to a guy talk. And I don't know the percentages, whether it's more than 50 or less than 50, whether it's the majority or or not. But I know that many of those churches will sing songs that exalt the human effort. And the pastor will never reference the Bible. Where the cross is, is not to be spoken of in polite company because it's too offensive. For the blood that Jesus shed for our righteousness, for our cleansing, is to be quietly dealt with in some back corner. And if the guy does bring the Bible, he brings it as a self-help book in many cases, because, oh, all you need to do is figure out how to be a good parent. Let's put together a series on parenting. And I'm not saying it's wrong to teach on what it is to be a good, godly parent. But you can't be a good, godly parent until the gospel has radically changed your life. You see, if we come and we learn to love Jesus, then the rest of it flows out naturally. But our culture says, no, you need to learn how to manage your finances. You need to learn how to be a good parent. You need to learn how to be a good husband and wife. You need to, you need to do all these things. I think the Bible teaches us we need to learn to love Jesus. And it's important that we hear this because this is where we live. It's important that we hear this because Jesus doesn't just come with condemnation. He doesn't come to them and say, there's no hope for you, I'm done. He comes and he says, here's the answers. He gives them five things, five keys. And I've heard some pastors refer to this as, as keys to gospel renewal or a revival. I'm saying this is five keys. I don't think it's some moment, some instant. I'm saying I think this is the reality of what the Christian life is supposed to look like no matter where you're at. He says first, wake up. You're dead. Wake up! Wake up! Be alert! Look around! Pay attention to what's happening! See, we're being lulled to sleep. And he comes, and the first thing he says is, pay attention! It's extremely critical, I think extremely relevant that he says this to Sardis, because Sardis sat on a plateau, and, and it was surrounded by, by uh, cliffs, and so they were very sheer faces, and, and they thought, nobody can get to us here except for one direction. And so they set their defenses up in such a way to guard that one direction. There were guards posted along the wall, but those guards knew, hey, nobody can get to us. We're safe here. Twice in their history, someone, one person, one person was the key to their demise because he, one person, two different people at two different times. Let me say it like that. Scale the cliff, climb over the wall, into the city, undo the defenses, and the city is sacked and overrun. Because they're not paying attention. Wake up. Be alert. Apathy, spiritual laziness, and a lack of commitment, Jesus says, are unacceptable. We cannot let them be who we are. Wake up. Wake up. Pay attention. Be alert. Go. Eavesdrop on the conversations. Tell me I'm wrong. Prove to me that I'm wrong. 
We live in a city, uh, just, just recently, if, if you don't believe me, again, let me just share with you. We, just recently, a poll comes out and names Springfield, Missouri, the sixth most, let me swallow all the saliva, the sixth most biblical-minded city in all of the nation. That's a, that's a big honor, right? Sixth most biblical-minded city in all of the nation that happens to lead our state in child and domestic abuse and meth use. You see, something, something doesn't jive there, does it? Wake up. Be alert. This is no time for apathy. It's no time to, to, to step back and sit down and, and, and enjoy the place that we can live and, and with no persecution and with no oppression. It's not time to do that. Wake up. Strengthen. He says, strengthen what remains. Jesus gave the church a twofold mission. He said, be fully devoted disciples and make fully de- devoted disciples. And, and, and I added some language there to maybe what you're used to hearing, be disciples that make disciples. But the reality is a disciple can be apathetic. A disciple can be sitting on his laurels, taking it in and just enjoying what, what God has given him. Oh, man, this is so great. I love my life. And, and I don't really have to do anything to earn this. And there's some sick Christians that actually accept that. In fact, I think it's kind of nominal Christians that Jesus is writing to in this letter that are doing that. But he says, strengthen what remains. That means get serious about it. Don't just make disciples that sit around and do nothing. Be a disciple that makes disciples that makes disciples. That means that each and every one of us have to recognize that there's nothing more important than Jesus first and His mission for us to make disciples. There's nothing more important. That means your job. That means your family. That means your your, your exercise, your, your entertainment, your, your uh, relaxation. There's nothing more important. But in your family, you should be making disciples. At your work, you should be striving to make disciples. As you rest, you should be doing it to honor God and set an example for His disciples. You see, these are not bad things I'm talking about. They're things that God has for us in the right priority. There is nothing more important. And so we have to get serious about being disciples that make disciples. We have to get serious about our lifestyles of worship that lead others to worship in life. We have to recognize this is the thing that we've been given to do. We go back, the theme of this whole series, the idea behind every one of these letters is that we make much of Jesus, that we live for His fame intentionally in all of our lives. This is what He's commending. And where it's not existing, this is what He's commanding. Do this. Strengthen what remains. We live, we live on the shoulders of those that came before us. We have a solid foundation. And in our sleep and in our ease, the enemy is coming and chipping away at where we stand. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. He says, remember. You want to know how to strengthen what remains? 
You want to know what to do to fulfill that command? He says, remember. He calls them to remember what they received and what they heard. The Christian walk requires us always to remember the gospel. Always to remember the gospel and always to remember the Spirit. It goes back to how Jesus introduced himself in this letter, I think. We are not a church without the Spirit. We can have all the trappings. We've got a building. We've got programs. We're going to observe communion. We're going to get together and we're going to have events. We, we can have a preacher. We can have leaders. We can have community groups. We can have all the trappings of church and not, and not really be a church. And I think there's plenty of places in Springfield where our family and our friends are going. In those, in those places this morning where, where the Bible is presented as a self-help book are not being referenced at all. The Spirit's gone. You know, I, I, I heard this said once, and the, the pastor, this is James McDonald, he said, I always tell people they can leave a church when God quits showing up. You know, we talk about, I've heard people say in our congregation even, I'm scared to steal sheep. I don't want to compete with other churches. That's not my intent, but there's a lot of sheep that need to be fed that aren't getting fed where they're at. And you know them. And they need to hear that there's something more. And they need to be confronted. You strengthen what you had by remembering that the Spirit is what makes us alive. And if people are in churches that where the Spirit is dead, then, then, then let me tell you, they need to be told to remember the Spirit. They need to remember the gospel. We, we talked about that just a second ago. Remember, it's the message. It's the message Jesus gave to his ministers to proclaim. It's the message in which builds the, it's the seed that's put in the ground and brings the, brings the, 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 the church. It's, it's, it's what's planted and the church comes to life. We've got to remember the gospel. There's never a moment in which we are not dependent upon the cross of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We need to remember that there's a moment in, in time when we stand and hear the gospel that it brings offense. I hope today, now I don't want it. I, I, I need to be careful. I say, I don't want to be offensive to you, but you need to be offended because some of us, I think, are asleep. Some of us are not working to strengthen what we already have. But let me tell you, the gospel says that there's still hope. Jesus tells this church, His promise to this church is that those that overcome, those that overcome and conquer, they will wear white and I, will, I won't take their name out of the book. That their name will remain in the book of life. And I will proclaim, I will mention them to my Father. And what a beautiful statement. You mean at some point in history, Jesus is going to stand before God the Father and He's going to say, Seth Shelton did good. Through my power. I pray for that moment. I long for that moment. Do you? We've got to remember the gospel that brings offense and grace. We've got to remember that the power of the Spirit is what gives us life. He says keep it. Live in line with it. Make, <laughs> make it what you do. Obedience to the gospel is about putting what you see in the gospel into active practice by the power of the Spirit. It's not about doing this on your own. 
But it's living every day in submission, being influenced, being filled by the Spirit. Paul in Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Live under the Spirit's influence. The idea is that you're so full that the the Spirit influences you. The Spirit moves you. The Spirit helps you make decisions. The Spirit encourages you to go left or right. That you live under this influence. It's not some magical, oh, I'm not going to know what's going on all of a sudden and be moved all about willy-nilly. It's about intentionally deciding that I'm going to live under God's influence. Because not only does the gospel tell me that he saves me, the gospel tells me that he lives in me. And see, in Galatians 5, and 23, Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. And he does this proclaiming and calling people to live in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. And the natural outcome is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So see, we don't, have to, we don't have to set up a big program that says, oh, here is how you become a good father. And if you follow my five-step program, you will not struggle with sin anymore. Or you want to overcome pornography addiction or alcohol addiction, follow this 12-step program. I'm not saying that some of these steps don't help people recognize the triggers and the issues they face. But they're empty if they don't start with Jesus. Love, the G- love Jesus, be filled with the Spirit, and the, and the outcome is the natural outcome. You don't have to force this. You don't have to make it up. You don't have to wish it was happening. The natural outcome of living by the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, you know, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You want to live a successful Christian life? Remember the gospel. Remember the Spirit and live influenced in obedience to it. And so all too often, all too often we think, oh, I can't, I can't share the gospel with that person. I might not know all the answers. You're doubting the Spirit's alive in you. I can't confront this person. They might reject me. You're doubting the Spirit's alive in you. I need to be accepted because if I don't do all the right things, then... Jesus' gospel won't be heard. If you don't bring the offensive message, Jesus' message won't be heard. You've forgotten that the Spirit is alive in you. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember. Keep keep what you remember. Live in obedience to it and repent. Change your mind. Repentance. All of the Christian life, whether you want to like it or feel good about it, doesn't matter is repentance. And you know what repentance is? Admitting you were wrong. I don't like this any more than you do because I like to be right. Ask my wife. All of the Christian life is repentance, and so therefore all of Christian life is admitting that you're wrong about something and having to change your perspective. You've bought into a lie and it needs to be replaced with the truth. Repent. Why does our city need to hear this? Why does our city need us to wake up, to do these things, to live and make these five key steps in the Christian life? Why does our city need that? Because I think it's Sardis. 
And Jesus says, he warns them, if you don't wake up, if you don't act, I'm going to come against you like a thief. Thief came to destroy, to pillage, to take, to ruin. I don't want that for our city. I don't want that for my friends and my neighbors. I don't want that for the people that I know and love and care about in this city. But his promise, his promise, if we'll do this, is security. Your name is in the book of life and it will not be blotted out. A lot of people struggle with this thinking that it means that there's a potential that it could get blotted out. That's not what it says. It says it won't be blotted out. It's not going to happen. Wake up. Get busy. And when the day comes and all things are done and Jesus is making everything new, he's going to look at his father. And he's going to use your name and recognize that you're one of his. What an amazing day that will be. Let's pray. God, I, you know the dread in my heart as I stood to preach this. I just pray that your message will be heard, Father. That your word will come through. Father, I, I pray that you'd wake us up. That you'd remind us again. Help us get strong. That we might be boldly proclaiming your message even in a place where we feel like it may not be necessary. Uh, would you move among your people now? And those that have had a form of religion given to them and they've trusted in that form of religion but never trusted in Christ, our source of life and our authority, would you please, God, in this moment, wake them up, give them life, give them your spirit, rest your spirit in their hearts and open their eyes and ears that they may hear what you have for your churches. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.